Hey, good morning, Christ Church. Welcome once again to Christ Church. Whether you're joining us on site or online, we want to say welcome. We are Christ Church, a church about lifting lives, a church about elevating Christ, a church for those who aren't here yet. As Leo mentioned, I am Vicar Nathan Miskey. Uh, Vicar is just a fancy way of saying a pastor in training. Next week, I want to invite you back for our next lesson series called Strapped, which is all about finances. We know, we know 2020 was filled with some difficulties, uh, and a lot of those were financial. So we wanna, wanted to make sure we took a, took a couple weeks to dive into a message series all about finances and how to be God-honoring with our finances, how to, how to get our finances right on track, how to, how to be good stewards over the resources that God has blessed us with, all of those amazing questions. So it's a great opportunity to invite others as well, uh, to invite family, friends, coworkers, people you know who maybe need some answers to those questions. Uh, so we'd love to see you back there. I'd love to see you invite people back for that as well. So strapped beginning next week and then through the end of January. But this week we're continuing in our Not Fair message series, which is uh, looking at a couple parables that Jesus, uh, Jesus uh, spoke, Jesus taught, which are these stories which have this deeper meaning behind them, the, the, the kind of like a fable, uh, it's, it's, there's a moral attached to it, there's a truth attached to it, there's something about the nature of God attached to this story that helps explain something. The story comes to us that we're going to look at today from Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Uh, it's going to be on the screen next to me as we go through it verse by verse, but if you want the full context as we're going through it, uh, I'd encourage you to open your Bibles up, maybe a Bible app on your phone, you can even Google it and, and open up for that way, Matthew 18, 21 through 35. It's also available in the sermon notes at ChristChurchMequon.life slash Sunday if you want to follow along there as well. But the story begins with Peter asking Jesus a question. Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Peter wants to know, what's the number? Jesus, I know you're all about grace. I know you're all about forgiveness. I know that who you are, your nature, is to be forgiving. It's to be a loving God. It's to be a forgiving God. So if we're to be like you, how many times do I need to forgive? What's the number? What Peter's thinking is constantly forgiving or an indefinite number of forgivenesses is ridiculous. No, no, no way that's the answer, so clearly there must be a number. And in fact, Peter's probably thinking he's going above and beyond here, above and beyond. He's probably thinking that he's going so much greater, he's, he's doing so much more forgiveness than anyone else would. After all, seven times... Think about actually forgiving someone seven times. Like someone does something wrong to you, the same thing wrong to you seven consecutive times. Think about the amount of grace and the amount of forgiveness it would take to forgive someone of the same mistake seven times. Peter is actually being quite graceful by coming with this number of seven times. We have phrases surrounding how many times we should forgive, right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Implying we're, we're allowed to give someone one second chance, but more than that, maybe not. Or, or we sometimes analogize it to baseball, right? We, we come up with these analogies like three strikes, you're out. You can forgive someone two times, certainly, but three times? Three times seems like too many. So when Peter comes with this seven times suggestion to Jesus, 
He's probably thinking Jesus is going to come back like, no, Peter, if you want to be that gracious, that's amazing, Peter. If you want to be that loving, oh, Peter, you'd be so great to be that loving. But you, you don't need seven. Maybe you only need three. Or maybe Peter's thinking Jesus is going to say something like, oh, Peter, I was going to say five, but, but if you're going to set the standard at seven, let's do seven. Let's say seven's the number. But of course, that's not who Jesus is. That's not the response Jesus gives. Instead, he says, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, the math here is 490 times, but Jesus isn't saying, get out your journal, write down everyone who you've ever forgiven and start keeping track. 488, 489, 490, that's it. No more forgiveness for you. What Jesus is saying here is that it's not about keeping track. It's not about having a specific number of times forgiven. Instead, it's about becoming somebody who forgives, whose natural inclination is simply forgiveness. Jesus himself, throughout Scripture, throughout the Gospels, throughout these stories about his life, his death, and his resurrection— constantly was trying to move the Jewish people away from this legalistic understanding of how to follow God and more to following the law, but because it was what was in their heart. An example of this was that Jesus would often do things that rubbed against Jewish tradition. And even though they were loving and even though they were following the law, they rubbed against Jewish tradition. One of these was that he would heal people on the Sabbath, which was against Jewish tradition because the third commandment is honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And if Jesus is healing people, that means he's working on the Sabbath. And according to Jewish tradition, he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be following the third commandment. And so these Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the Jewish leaders would come to Jesus and be like, Jesus, you can't do that. You can't heal on the Sabbath. But he'd be like, that's not the point of that law. The point of the law is to love God and love others. That's the point of the whole law. And so is it wrong for me to love someone just because it's the Sabbath? Is it wrong for me to heal someone just because it's the Sabbath? He's trying to move away from this legalistic rule-based, following simply the rule just because it's the rule understanding of the Jewish law and towards one that is just habitual. Martin Luther King Jr. comments on this verse in one of his sermons. He says, forgiveness is not a matter of quantity, but of quality. It's not about the number of times you forgive, but whether or not you've truly forgiven. A man or a person cannot forgive up to 490 times without forgiveness becoming a part of the habit structure of his being. Forgiveness is not an occasional act. It is a permanent attitude. For Dr. King, it's not about these specific acts of forgiveness, and it's not about keeping track. It's about becoming forgiveness, becoming the habit. It's becoming what you're naturally inclined to do is to be forgiving. Because if you forgive someone 489 times, that 490th is going to be what you're naturally just inclined to do. It's going to become the habit. And if it's your habit, it's moving away from being an action, even though it certainly is but it's going to move towards being an attitude. Your attitude itself will be one of forgiveness. It'll be one of love. It'll be one of grace. 
Now, Jesus explains why his thinking is like this. He explains why Peter should forgive not seven times, but 70 times seven times through a parable. The parable of the unforgiving or unmerciful servant. Begins by saying, therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money for him. A couple things I want to point out. Therefore is a key word in the Bible. If you see this, you know what was said before is going to be connected to what is said after. In this case, this parable is going to be about forgiveness. It's going to explain the forgiveness. And if you were with us last week, you know the kingdom of heaven can be compared to is kind of one of those key phrases in the Bible. When we see this, we know Jesus is about to speak in a parable. He's about to use a story, a narrative, to explain a greater truth behind it. And, and in this story, the, the setting of it is this king who has a bunch of servants that he borrowed money to. And maybe it's the end of the year, right? Maybe it's the new year. He's trying to get the books in order. He's trying to get the accounting all lined up. So he's, he's making sure everyone who owes him money pays it back. And in the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. Make sure you're keeping track of this specific person, this debtor, because they're kind of be going to become the main character of this story. And he owes him millions of dollars. Now, something I want to mention here is that we use the New Living Translation uh, for most of our stuff here at Christchurch, uh, also known as the NLT. And, and translating can be tricky because the New Testament, where the Gospels are, was written in Greek. And so when we translate to the English, the, the, whoever translated it has to make certain choices. And those different choices are why we have different translations of the Bible, if you've heard of this. So there's some translations, there's different kind of schools of thought, uh, and they serve different purposes. So there's some translations that try to be a little more word for word. They try to, they try to translate it very clinically, very word for word, and do less of the interpretation aspect of it for you. Now this can be clunky to read, it can be hard to read, uh, so there's good to it because you understand what the actual words were, but it can be a little bit trickier to read. The New Living Translation is kind of on the other side where it's, it's, uh, it does a little bit more of the translation for you. It's, it's still certainly a good translation, but it, it, uh, it does a little bit more of the interpretation for you as well. It goes one more step for us. And in this case, I think it does a little bit of a disservice to this verse. Because when I see millions of dollars, where my brain goes is like two or three million, four million maybe. But what the word-for-word -word translation would be here is that the servant owed him 10,000 talents. Now, obviously, we have no idea what a talent is. Or at least, I don't think anyone knows what a talent is. Uh, but what a talent would be would be about 15 years of wages or basically a bag of gold. So in today's terms, 10,000 talents would be somewhere between like half a billion dollars and a couple billion dollars. So it's not just a couple million, but it's half a billion dollars. So this servant owes this king half a billion dollars. Now, I don't know what this servant was doing that he racked up half a billion dollars of debt. I don't know what kind of luxuries, what kind of appurtenances, what kind of extravagance he was living in. But somehow he wound up half a billion dollars in debt. Spoil alert for the Strap series. Um, I'm sure one of the messages or one of the ideas is going to be don't rack up that much debt if you're a servant who doesn't make a whole lot of money, I imagine. But somehow he's half a billion dollars in debt, and he couldn't pay because of course he can't pay. 
How are you ever going to come up with a half a billion dollars? Half a billion dollars. So his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. Because of how much he owed, he had to be punished. After all, there's no way he's ever going to come up with this much money. It's just not possible. But the man, the servant, fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. Please, just give me a little more time. Just give me a few more chances. Just give me some time and I'll, I'll, I'll figure out a way to come up with it. I'll, I'll bring the money. Just give me some time. And he begs and he pleads for just some more time. And his master, the king, was filled with pity for him. And he released him and forgave his debt. The king goes above and beyond even what the servant asked for. Because the servant asked for just more time. The servant asked for just the punishment to be delayed. And the king gives him this. But he also gives him a full forgiveness of his debt. Half a billion dollars that he no longer owes. Half a billion dollars. Think about that. Think about what it would take to forgive someone of half a billion dollars. Imagine you loaned somebody half a billion dollars and then just said, you know what? I don't need it back. That's an incredible amount of forgiveness. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. Now, this few thousand dollars, the literal translation would be a hundred denarii. A denarius would be a day's wages, so a hundred denarii would be about a third of a year's salary, somewhere in the, the range of $10,000. So the servant who had been forgiven of half a billion dollars or more was unwilling to forgive a debt of $10,000. And, and so he demands the payment. He needs the money. He wants the money. And after all, this servant that he had loaned money to his fellow servant owes him this money, and he wants it back. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me, and I will pay it, he pleaded. Does this sound familiar? Is this not exactly what the servant did to the king? Beg for more time, beg for just some more opportunity, an extension, a delayment of the punishment, and he'd find a way to come up with the money. So this new servant does exactly what the first servant did. Does exactly what the first servant did. And so what the expectation would be is since this is the exact same situation. The servant who had been forgiven would be willing to forgive. Because when he begged and he pleaded, he was forgiven. So when someone begs and pleads to him with a debt that is far less than the debt he was forgiven of, of course he should forgive. But his creditor, the first servant, wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. 
He wasn't willing to wait. He wasn't willing to forgive the debt. He didn't, he didn't give the man what he asked for by just giving him more time, and, and no, he didn't even forgive the debt either. No, instead he, he had the punishment laid down on him immediately. Even though he had been forgiven, even though he had been given this huge forgiveness, he was unwilling to forgive in the same manner. Now imagine you're one of the fellow servants you're a different person who's seen all this. You know both of these people. How would you feel to know that this person that had been forgiven of so much was unwilling to forgive so relatively little? Well, what they did is they tattled. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant! I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Because you begged for forgiveness, I forgave you. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? In fact, I don't think this statement goes far enough. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had even more mercy on you, exponentially more mercy on you, half a billion dollars amount of mercy on you. Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Even though this servant had been forgiven of half a billion dollars, he was unwilling to forgive a $10,000 debt. So what's the point of the parable? What's the message behind the parable then? Sometimes when people talk about forgiveness, they use a certain phrase. We should forgive and forget. After all, if you haven't forgotten it, have you really forgiven it? And although I think this phrase is well-intentioned and it, it's, it, it has good intentions behind it, I don't think it's 100% accurate. After all, this king didn't forget the servant's forgiveness. He remembered it. But more than that, I think we can all think of examples. Let's imagine you, you have a roommate or a spouse or a kid or somebody, somebody you live with, right? And, and you have a tendency to leave, leave some money around and they have a tendency of stealing a dollar or two every now and then. You can forgive them, certainly. Uh, and and maybe, maybe you continue to leave the money out, right? So, and, but then they do it again. And you can forgive them again. But you can also begin to protect yourself. You, you don't have to continue to leave the money out. No, you're probably going to be wise and, and remember. <laughs> remember, they might have a tendency to do this, so you, you guard your money a little closer because we don't want to continue to allow ourselves to get hurt just in the name of forgiveness. And that's, that's a relatively silly example, but the applications of this go well beyond to far greater hurts and far greater traumas. We don't have to 
continue to allow ourselves to get hurt just in the name of forgiveness. So what is the point of the parable? I think it's this. Forgive like you have been forgiven. After all, the the servant looks bad in this parable because he was unwilling to forgive even though he had been forgiven. If If he had simply... Not if, if the story would have ended after the king had forgiven him, it would have been a great story, right? It would have been all about the generosity of the king and, and the mercy of the king. But because the servant didn't forgive the debt that was owed to him, well, now it's about his unwillingness to forgive. And he should have forgiven because he had been forgiven. And we too can forgive because we have been forgiven. We've been forgiven of our sins. We've been forgiven of our brokenness. We've been forgiven of all that we've done wrong. After all, the the punishment that we deserve for our sins is death. But we don't have to pay that. No, we've been forgiven of that. So we've been forgiven of sin whose punishment is death. How much should we then forgive? If we've been forgiven of a debt that's even greater than half a billion dollars, how much more should we be willing to forgive? I think we should forgive unfairly because we have been unfairly forgiven. Yes, it's not fair that the, that the servant isn't going to get his $10,000 back. After all, he loaned it out, and it's not fair that he's not going to get it back. And it's not fair that people might hurt us and treat us wrong. And maybe they were so good to them, maybe we were so kind to them, maybe we were so generous to them, maybe we were so loving to them. And yet they sin against us, and they hurt us, and maybe it's once, maybe it's seven times, maybe it's 490 times. And it's not fair that even though we've treated them so well, they've treated us so poorly, and yet we are called to forgive them even though it's not fair. We are called to do it because we have been unfairly forgiven. Because what else is not fair is that even though you have sinned, you have been broken, you have hurt people, and you have sinned against God, you didn't have to pay the punishment. No, it's not fair that Jesus took on that punishment. It's not fair that Jesus died. It's not fair that Jesus suffered for you. But how amazing it is that he did. Because Jesus died for you. Jesus loved you so much that he took on your punishment and he took on your debt so that you didn't have to pay it. You have been unfairly forgiven so you can forgive unfairly. So let us in this new year take new opportunities to be forgiving people. When people sin against us, let us forgive them. And let us not do it just to, just to keep track of it. Let's not do it just to keep score. Oh, I've forgiven them seven times. They've forgiven me three times. Let's become people of grace. Let's become people of forgiveness. So much so that it becomes a habit. It becomes a permanent attitude. It becomes who we are, that we emulate the forgiveness we've been given and extended to others, that we be like Christ, whose very nature 
is grace and forgiveness. And we too become people of grace and forgiveness. Let us forgive unfairly because God loves you. Let us forgive unfairly because Jesus died for you. Let us forgive unfairly because we have been unfairly forgiven. Let's pray. Good and gracious, forgiving and loving God, thank you. Thank you for choosing to love us. Thank you for choosing, Jesus, to come into this world, to enter into our brokenness, into our sin, and to take it on, to take on the punishment that we deserved and to die for us. God, in moments where we aren't treated fairly, help us to remember how you weren't treated fairly for our sake. Help us to remind it of the incalculable debt that we owe you and help us to forgive the debts that other people might owe to us. God, in this new year, help us to become people who have a permanent attitude of grace, forgiveness, and your love. We love you. We praise you. We praise things in the name of you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen.